John 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 9 this morning. John 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There was a program that I watched often growing up on ABC's Wide World of Sports. And that's obviously, if you're familiar with that program, you understand where my title comes from um, this morning. But it would begin spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. And it would have all these little images and of, of uh, sporting events. And then it would say, the thrill of victory. And there would be some boxing champion or some home run celebration. And then the agony of defeat. And, there, and it was always a ski, ski uh, jumper that was just lost everything. And, and, uh, and so this, this, is, this is it. In, in sports... Winning is thrilling. Victory is thrilling. And defeat is agonizing. If you're a competitor, you, you understand that. Well, Jesus in John 12, 12 to 26 here, he, he turns that maxim on its head. And he's not talking about athletic competition. But what we see in this familiar passage, it's in all four gospel accounts, what we call the triumphal entry, which is an ironic title, but Jesus is not thrilled with the victory parade. He planned it, he's embracing it, but, but he, he's, he's weeping, we know from Luke's account. 
But he's also, he's not in agony at this point over his imminent death. The cross. No, as we see, he's leaning into it. He's, he's, he's ready for it. And so, there's this dramatic irony in this scene before us. And so we're going to see that this morning, and then we're going to see what Jesus says to us in light of it. So, so we see, again, this strange irony. It's dramatic irony. It's when the audience sees something, perceives something that the actors on stage, you know, don't understand, don't know. And that's what we have here. The, through the writer John, we, we get to see the incongruity of this scene. We, we get to see something that the crowds don't get. There's this massive gap between what appears to be and what really is as we see it through Jesus' eyes. And so so we see Jesus being coronated to die. The, the, the agony of victory. And we see him, him, that He was crucified to reign the thrill of defeat. So first... We're going to look at that agony of victory that Jesus was coronated to die. Verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So in verse 12 here, we're, we're taken abruptly, transported from the sleepy little village of Bethany where Jesus was with Lazarus and, and, and Mary and Martha and those witnesses and having the meal and all of that were taken from there, which is a mile or two outside of Jerusalem, to the bustling metropolis of Jerusalem now. That's, that's what's happening. So with Passover just a few days away, the city is just crammed full of people, bursting at the seams with people and with animals. Oh, they had animals. All the animals that were used to transport people, all the animals for sacrifice, all the animals that were being used in the construction of the temple. I mean, just, this city is just, just, is just a madhouse during Passover. People and animals everywhere, sights, sounds, sensory overload during Passover. This, because Passover was a, was a huge deal in Israel. You, you had, you had the headcount in, in Jerusalem that grew by probably some thousand percent during the time of Passover. So Jerusalem was, it was not a big city. It was, I, I was just trying to get some perspective on the size of Jerusalem and, that, and the immediate surrounding area. And, and, and if you could picture, um, if we go from the church to Highway 54 over here, if, if you take that distance and you send it out the other direction and make a square, that's about the size of Jerusalem. There would normally be about 80,000 inhabitants in Jerusalem. So it's not a big, huge city. But during Passover, there could be anywhere between just under a million to some estimates said as high as two and a half million people during certain years, during Passover. So just so many people crammed in like sardines. And so this annual feast, though, it, it was marked by this strong sense of nationalism, nationalistic pride, and, and even political anticipation. Remember, Israel is under the, under the authority and oppression of Rome at this point, And they don't like it. And so the Passover was this, this, this annual celebration that just marked these thoughts and brought about these thoughts of deliverance and expectation, hope, anticipation that God would set His people free from this oppression. And so these people are yearning for that deliverance from Rome. And, and so there's this mix of joy and hope and optimism, but also anger. 
and rage. And, and, and you see this mix. It's like a lot of political rallies, honestly, today that we're seeing in our own country. And so into that atmosphere, Jesus plans his entrance, his big entrance into Jerusalem. And other gospel accounts give much more detail and, and show how Jesus was meticulous and how this was premeditated and he, he had it all laid out ahead of time. Everything was going according to plan. Everything that happened. John doesn't give as much, that's not, that's not his, the thrust of his account. But what we see and need to understand is that there were the people in the crowds were, they came from different places. And so you have all these pilgrims there. You have people from Jerusalem. You have people from the surrounding areas. And you have people from Galilee and people from all the regions. So they had varying degrees of knowledge about Jesus. You had thousands of pilgrims from Galilee. And they saw Jesus perform many signs. They were witnesses to so many of Jesus' miracles. Then you had those who were witnesses to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so they're talking, talking it up in Jerusalem, we see in verse 17, 18. And, and so others have heard about Lazarus' resurrection. So, so you have all this going on. And so then here comes Jesus into Jerusalem and the people are just in a frenzy. This wonder worker, this, this miracle worker, this man who raised Lazarus from the dead, he's coming into Jerusalem. Is this, is this the one? Is he the one that's going to set us free? Could, could Jesus be the one who leads this great military uh, victory to overthrow Rome and to set us free and bring us peace and prosperity again as a people? Is he the one? And so these cheering pilgrims that are on the way to Jerusalem, they're, they're, they're starting to pick up steam and as Jesus is coming in. And then you have all these this flood of people that was already in Jerusalem, the residents and those pilgrims that had already made there, they hear that Jesus is coming, so they go out of the city, and so and as they go, they start cutting down palm branches and taking them out and waving them and laying them in the street. So you have this, this, this large group of people from both directions coming and ascending on Jesus as He enters the city. That's the scene as you put the parallel accounts together. And so they're waving these palm branches, which was a kind of a national symbol of victory. It's like their national flag. And it all had roots back to a time in Israel's history when God delivered them during the Maccabees. And, and so you, you have this, it's this big patriotic rally. If you've been watching the Ryder Cup, for the few of you that care anything about golf, it's, it's this golf competition between Europe and the United States and it's every two years and it goes back and forth between continents and so it's here this year. And so, so it's a strange golf tournament because you have this USA and all these flags and all this stuff. It's a very raucous kind of golf crowd, not your normal, normal crowd. But, but I, I mean, this is that, it's that, it's that, it's that, but way, way stronger. This, this patriotism, this nationalistic pride. That's the environment. And listen to what they're shouting. They take hold of a passage in the Old Testament from Psalm 118, which is this great messianic victory psalm. Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. And they shout it over and over and over again. So don't just think this was one big, one big shout. No, they're just constantly saying this. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna! Hosanna! When they say Hosanna, I know it's not a word we, it's not an English word, but it's a, it's a word that means, oh, save. Save now. Deliver us. Oh, deliver us. That's what they're saying when they say Hosanna. Even the King of Israel. And, and, and you got to understand how that sounds. To say that is this statement of protest. 
This is the very reason that Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. That's the line of questioning. Are you a king? And you have all these Roman soldiers in the crowd hearing, King of Israel? Nuh-uh. I mean, they're ready to strike. But but this boldness in the crowds, Oh, save us, King of Israel. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And listen, this is not about messianic worship. This is not about spiritual worship. That's not this scene. This is about nationalistic pride, as we'll see. They see they see Jesus like Scott see William Wallace. This is this is it. he's that kind of figure. The crowd is not looking for deliverance from the curse of sin. They're looking for deliverance from the grip of Rome. That's their concern. And it is true. They lay hold of a promise in in Psalm 118, and it is true the Messiah will come one day. He will come again and He will reign as King and He will crush all of His enemies under His feet. That is a certainty. He will come in that way. But there's another aspect to Messiah. And it's one they didn't consider or one they didn't even care about. And it's that He would first come as a humble sin bearer. And this is, this is what Jesus has in mind. You know, we can, we can see ourselves in this, can't we? We have our own version of this in, in our day, don't we, brothers and sisters? It's, we, we, even as Christians, we can put hope in politicians, government, military. That, that, can be our, that can be our expectations. We can treat King Jesus like he's some kind of political pawn. Give us what we want. I mean, if, if you're thinking about this upcoming election, if you think that the, the greatest need in the church right now is for a president who will look after our interests, that's telling. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care. I'm not saying that there won't be tremendous consequences from this upcoming election for the church. But if, if, you, if your hope is shaken on November 9th because of whatever results you wake up to see and read in the paper... Then, then that might show something about our hearts, where our hope is. Jesus will still be king on November 9th, whatever happens. He will still be our only hope, our only, our only salvation, our only source of help. Well, Jesus knows what's in the hearts of these crowds just as He knows what's in our hearts as I'm seeing the application for us. He knows... He knows that these people draw, as Isaiah says, they draw near with their mouths. They honor Him with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. He knows that in a few days, as Patrick said, this crowd, same crowd by and large, will be shouting just as fanatically, Crucify Him! Same people. He knows they only care about the temporal benefits He can give them. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, man, what can He do for us? They, they, they saw him as this, again, this kind of ticket to peace and prosperity. And I, I can say, we can, we, can, we can wrongly view Jesus like this. We can wrongly see him in, in financial prosperity and, and, and health and, and, and temporal benefits, like he exists to serve our agendas. We can treat him like that, to accomplish our plans. But that's not, that's not who he is. He goes on to show who he is, and that's what we want to see. Who is, who is Jesus? Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey. And again, this was all set up. Other gospel accounts tell us. And he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. This is from Zechariah 9. 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples, they didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and been done to him. So he comes and he's seated on a donkey. Now, be honest. When was the last time you saw a donkey and thought, what a majestic creature? <laughs> there's, there's a couple donkeys on the way to our kids' school and take them Tuesday mornings. There's these two little donkeys and I always make a donkey sound, which they always get annoyed by. But uh, they're, not, they're not powerful creatures. They're just little lowly beasts of burden. Um, but this isn't some random detail, as, as we see. And this is what John is showing. This is fulfilled prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as He, <coughs> humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the fall of a donkey. In ancient time, when a, when a king rode in parade fashion like this on a donkey, it was, it was indicating it was a time of peace, not warfare. Times of war, he'd ride a horse, but here he's riding a donkey. And so John's point in referring to Zechariah's prophecy is to show that, that Jesus in his first coming came not as conquering king, crushing his enemies. He came as a humble king, offering himself as sacrifice for sin. Later, John gets a vision of Jesus riding a horse, a war horse. That's the true triumphal entry in Revelation 19. So that day is coming. But one of the things, one of the applications for us, and one of the things I want you to see is, and we've seen this throughout John, is, is this, this is one more place that shows us that God's promises are absolutely unbreakable. That everything He said will come to pass. His word never, ever, ever fails. What God, every prophecy that pointed to Jesus' first coming was fulfilled to the letter. And that gives us hope that all of His promises will come to pass. And so, so anchor, I just say, brothers and sisters, whatever's going on, whatever, whatever chaos seems to be happening in your life, things seem to be out of control, it seems like the, the world's kind of spinning, and however you're thinking about the uh, political climate or just your personal life, whatever's, whatever you, however you're feeling about it, you've you got to anchor your soul to the bedrock of God's unbreakable Word, His promises. He's like, I, I use those ratchet straps. Man, I love those things. Because you feel like you're strong. Because, you know, just a little bit of torque, you can really tighten things down. I mean, that's, that's what you got. I was just thinking of that image. Just ratchet your soul, ratchet your heart. Just to, to God and His Word and His promises. And it gives us comfort and help and stability no matter what we're going through. Well, the disciples, they don't, they don't see the connection. Verse 16 tells us. They, they, they don't make the connection at the time. Later, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, John says, they, they, they were able to connect the dots. They have this kind of aha moment at, at some point later. And I think they probably had Zechariah 9. They didn't have copies of the Scripture like we have. Maybe they heard Zechariah 9 read, or they had it. one of them had it memorized, and as they're reciting it, it's like, oh, that's it. That's it. And so they have this moment. And one of the things that that shows is the disciples are just about as clueless as the crowds in terms of why Jesus came. 
They, they, they miss, they're missing what Jesus' mission was all about. As many times as He told them why He came, what He came to accomplish, as many times as He corrected their wrong ideas about why He came, Jesus is patient. And, and this is another way the Spirit later ministers to them and shows them and helps them connect the dots. But I would just say, brothers, just even on this side of the empty tomb, we can, as I said earlier, we can forget what Christ's mission is. What he came to accomplish. We can, we can make it about something else, about self-help, about morality, about, you know, social good, family values, political gain, whatever, whatever, kind of however we want to spin it, but we miss what his mission really is. What, that, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That Jesus came to call his other sheep that are not of this fold who must come also and he's gonna make them into one flock with one shepherd. That's, that's his mission. That's what he's still accomplishing. That's, and that's why we exist. Saying, said this earlier. We exist to make disciples of all nations. Disciples of Christ. We exist to, to glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and abroad. That's it. Period. We do not exist to maintain programs in this church. We do not exist to keep the lights on and to pay the bills and support staff and we don't exist to promote family values. We don't exist for political influence. We exist to join God in the mission that He's already engaged in and has been from before the foundation of the world to make and to grow followers of Jesus Christ who make and grow other followers of Jesus Christ who make and grow other followers of Jesus Christ. That is why we do everything that we do. It's got to be. But I would say the disciples even with Jesus among them, even hearing it from His mouth. Now I realize we're privileged to be on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. I say we can still have this tendency to forget. Make it about something else. Verse 17 and 18, they highlight the effect that Lazarus' resurrection had on people. And, and, it, and, it, and it forced all eyes on Jesus. That's the, that was the Jesus intention with the timing of, of everything in the shadow of Jerusalem, raising Lazarus from the dead two weeks before the Passover. It's so that all eyes will be fixed upon him. And so, so as, as this scene unfolds, everything that the religious leaders did not want to happen is happening. <laughs> and so verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now that's an exaggeration. <laughs> But but it feels to them like their whole anti-Jesus campaign and program is a complete failure. We, we've lost them. We lost these fickle crowds. They've 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 leaned towards Jesus. It seems like we're failing. They've been swayed. They're discouraged, but they don't give up. And I read somewhere this week in reference to something different that evil is willing to be patient, and that's what we see here. But the thing that we, we see first, it's just this major gap between how the crowds, how the people view this scene and how Jesus views it. The crowds can almost taste the thrill of victory over Rome. That's, what, that's what's got them all excited. But Jesus, he's, he's in agony over this victory parade. Again, Luke says he's weeping as he sees this scene unfold before his eyes. Not tears of joy. Oh, see how much they love me. Isn't that precious? That's not it. He sees the tragic irony of it all. He, he, they see a crown. He, he only sees a cross. That's what's in his view. 
And that's where he turns the attention. So, so what John records for us this interesting little interaction here, exchange. And, and so the religious leaders say the whole world has gone after Jesus. And the very next verse it says that there are these Greeks who've come asking for Jesus. It's a, interesting. So the second movement is this thrill of defeat. That Jesus was crucified to reign. So Jesus turns away from the celebration to face his own crucifixion. He's going to be killed in a very public and violent way. Now any normal person would, would, would do everything to avoid that, would be horrified by that prospect. But it seems, as John records this for us, that Jesus is, is glad that, that it's happening. Not, not because of how it will take place, but because of what it will accomplish. This is his hour in which he will be glorified through his death. Paul says it's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That's not in contradiction to what we see in Gethsemane as Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Father, if, it, if, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, let it, let it but not my will but yours be done. Those aren't in contradiction. But, but So it's time for Jesus to be glorified. Not with shouts of adulation and a parade in the streets, but through his death. The cross is one of the clearest displays of the glory of God because of what it accomplished. Because it, it, it in, in so many ways, and I, I, I was just thinking about this morning, it's not, even, not in my notes, but I was thinking the cross, it, it says that salvation is of the Lord. There's no other way that man can be saved but through Jesus Christ. And so it, it, it serves as to, to glorify Jesus by saying there is salvation in no one else. It's only Christ. He's the only one that can be a, a substitute, a sacrifice for sins. So, so that's, that's one of many ways in which the, the, the cross, again, it, it, it is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so this is the thrill of defeat. So verse 20, i got to be quick, I realize. Now among those who went up to, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These were probably proselytes to Judaism. So God-fearing Greeks who, who were monotheists, and so they, they're learning of the Jews and, and want to worship like the Jews, but they can't go past the court of the Gentiles because they're Greeks. They're, they're, that's not possible. Now, one quick detour. All right, you, you remember from our study of Matthew, and if you, if you look at the parallel accounts, where does Jesus go immediately after the triumphal entry? Where does he go? Somebody tell me. Anybody remember? It's like Bible trivia. I know I hate this when preachers do this. So, <laughs> he goes to the temple. He goes to the temple, and, and remember, this is the second time that he does this, but he goes in and he finds all the money changers that he drove out earlier, years before. Now they're all back again, and so you have all these people in the temple exchanging money and selling stuff and making profits and, 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 and exploiting the people. And he goes in, he makes a whip, and he drives everybody out of the temple again. And so, so that's just happened. Now where, where in the temple did that whole bizarre scene take place? It was in the court of the Gentiles. So John's not giving this strict sequential uh, thought. I, I, you wonder if, if these men observed this whole scene, because here they were in the court of the Gentiles, this is as far as they could go, watching this, this chaos of this market in the temple, and then Jesus comes in, drives everybody out. I've got to see that guy. We've got to see this Jesus. And so, so they, these men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, probably because Philip had a Greek name, and he was from a village that spoke the Greek language. And so they come to him, they ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
That's one of those little sayings that many pulpits throughout church history and around the world have been inscribed with that saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, to remind preachers that people don't care what you have to say or they're not here to see you. They want to see Christ. So point them to Jesus. And that's a great reminder. But here they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. (laughs) Andrew, Philip went and told Jesus. He gets back up. Um... But these Greeks are asking for some face time with Jesus. Probably had some questions asked. Probably wanted to hear from Christ. So we don't know if Jesus ever granted their request. That's not, that's not relevant to what John's recording for us. I, I like to think that he probably did talk with these guys, but we're not told. What John wants us to see is how this moment, how this little request, this little question, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, how it proves to be the pivotal point in the story. Verse 23 when, when they ask this question of Jesus, when they relay this to Jesus, Jesus answered them, Okay, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. <laughs> He's been saying all along, it's not time, it's not my hour, not yet, not yet, not my hour. And then these Greeks come and ask to see Jesus, and Jesus say, Go time, it's my hour, it's time. What was it about this request that signals Jesus to take, turn a corner and go straight to the cross. What, what was it? Is it it's, it's like a secret agent hearing a, hearing a code word. The apple is ripe. I repeat, the apple is ripe. And so it's supposed to set in motion this elaborate plan or something like that. I mean, here, sir, we wish to see Jesus. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What, what, is, what is it? I think it's this. I think that the gospel will go out to the whole world, Jew and Gentile. The Jewish people have rejected Jesus as their Savior, but these Greeks, they're searching for Him. He came to His own people, and His own people did not receive Him. That's how the Gospel begins. And this is, this is, this, this is where we live today. This is, we're having a concert tonight. I invite all of you to come back tonight. There's a, 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 a Christian Jew will be coming and sharing some Hebrew music tonight. And, 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 and uh, so we'll have some Jewish music tonight just reminding us and to pray for Israel and, to, and to, to, to continue to preach Christ to them. He is their Messiah. And so he, but, he, but he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But, but now salvation is to be proclaimed to the whole world. And it's this, it's this, it's like the Father sending the Son a signal here. So the world, this worldwide scope of the gospel we've seen throughout John, we saw most famously in John 3, 16 and 17, but that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John wants us to see clearly that the Jews' rejection of Jesus does not mean that God's plan of salvation has been in any way thwarted. Everything is happening according to plan. So God's, God's global mission is why the gospel ever came to us in the first place. Why, why we are saved. Why, why our church even exists way over here from there. How is that possible? It's because of this. This is why we have to be more committed than ever, brothers and sisters, to, the, to, the, to world missions. To seeing the gospel go out to the nations. We've got to be full throttle, church. This is not the time to be pulling back and coasting. We, we have our missions conference coming up, and I hope that every single one of you is, is already planning to be here for everything. I signed up for the men's breakfast, signed Carson and I up last night when that email came out. Be here, ladies, at the brunch, and have missionaries for lunch, and take advantage of every opportunity. We need, we need hearts that are just on fire, to, to, beating with, with Christ to see the gospel go out to the nations, to the whole world. 
And so, so, so what Jesus is showing, he's not some tribal deity. He's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the world. What hope and help that is to us to say that and to, to really deeply believe that. He's the king of every nation. And he's the king of every neighborhood. Including Deer Glen Forest where we live and so Corinth Corridor that our church is placed on. He's king. There's no place you're going to go in the world. No place you'll go in this community where Jesus isn't already reigning. He's king. And Jesus is showing us that. And so, so he has sheep. He, he, they must come also. They will hear his voice. And so our job, our wonderful, happy job is to lift Jesus up in, in, in witness and in worship and so that he can call all men to himself. That's what we do. We don't go out wondering if it will work. No, he's king. He's king. It's part of his mission. It is his mission. So it sounds wonderful. He's Jesus be glorified and then remember what, what his hour of glory consists of. What is, what is it? It's an interesting way to say it. He said, he'll say this in John 17. Father, glorify me. And he's talking, it's all glory. And what is it, what's the moment he's talking about? He's talking about the cross, his death. This is it, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. And when he says that again, that's just, you better listen to this. This is, you, you cannot, you cannot put too much confidence in what I'm about to say to you. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to take this thing. Listen, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, that's a little parabolic way of teaching. I'll unpack it, but what he's saying to Andrew and Philip in response to them coming to Jesus with this question is, I'm on my way to glory. I'm on my way to glory. I will really be something to see. <laughs> you, you will want to behold me. They are right to want to see me. I, I will pray for this. And John 17 will pray that, that they will see my glory. But my pathway to glory is through the grave. That's what he's making clear. If you want to see the glory of Christ, look at the cross. Jesus is this grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies, thus producing much fruit. That's a great image, isn't it? I mean, just... I, I thought about having a little object lesson, but how am I going to show a grain of wheat? I'd have had to have like a bag or something up here, but anyway, I didn't have any of it. So just imagine, what do you know? You might, here, here's my grain of wheat, and so you can't tell. No, picture a, a tiny grain of wheat. Just picture that in your mind. You've seen this before. So small. Now really, you can, you can see a grain of wheat, and you see what it is, but can you really see it? Can you really see what's there? What's really there? In order to really see it, you have to, you have to plant it. You have to put it in the dark soil alone. And if you watch it, eventually a little green sprout will appear. And eventually you have a blade and then the plant and the stem and then it'll have, the grain will have a head on it. Eventually they will turn golden and then it's time for harvest. But you still, you haven't seen everything that's in that grain of wheat. Not yet. Because you, you plant all the grains from that head that are, that are ripe for harvest, you plant those again. And you do that over and over again. Repeat the process until one day you're standing out along this edge of this golden field with the weed just blowing in the breeze. And you just see this field flowing with wheat. You say, ah, that's, that's this. That's this little wheat. I mean, that's, the, that's the image here. That's what Jesus means. The, through the cross, through the death of one, the gospel goes to all people. 
And there's an abundance of fruit that comes through the death of one. And we're part of that wheat field that's still growing. We're still reaping the fruit of Jesus' death. The story is still continuing. We're part of this same story. And, and, and so as we talk about Vision 2020, I don't care what you think about our logo or our, how we worded little points or whatever that, or if you think this is a good goal or if it should be worded differently. I mean, I do care. I'm, feel free to give input. That's not what I'm trying to say. Whether you think that our little strategic plan is great or not, that's not it. But the mission, that's something to be all in for. Jesus is, is, is still accomplishing this mission. He's still, his still, his death is still bearing fruit. There's still harvest to be, to be reaped. We need to be part of that, brothers and sisters, and give ourselves to that end. And that's where, that's where he goes next. And he, he turns to us in a sense. He speaks of the, 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 his dying as a salvation for us. And then he turns to us and says, now imitate me. Imitate. Verse 25 and 26, and we're done. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he, so he, he talks about his hour, his glory, which is death. And he turns to us and says, follow me. Die with me. Hate your life in this world with me. Serve me. He calls us to live out this pattern of death producing life. It's paradoxical, isn't it? It's, it's counterintuitive. Everything, everything around us, everything in us says, look out for number one, just accumulate all you can, make something of yourself, get all you can out of life. And Jesus says, no, that's 100% wrong. It's the exact opposite of that, in fact. It says, whoever loves his life, whoever lives for himself, who places his highest value on his personal comfort, personal gain, personal peace, personal affluence, personal pursuits and ambitions, whoever loves his life, he loses it. And whoever hates his life in the world, though, will find eternal life. You get it back in a far greater way. So he's calling us, he's calling us to a life of total involvement, total engagement in his purposes, in a life that really matters. He's calling you and me. He's calling to this, as he says in Matthew 16, 24, if he tells his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Paul says it like this, present yourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. So it's, it's, it's this hard road for us as followers of Jesus Christ. But it's, it is a glorious road, isn't it? And this is what he says. The promise of blessing makes, and reward makes it, makes it all worth it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That where I am, there, there, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you see, you see the hardness of this. It's, it, we die and death to self is hard, isn't it? It's hard. Taking up the cross daily is hard. Hating our lives in this world is hard. Following Jesus on the road to Calvary is hard. Serving Him, being a slave, being a servant of Jesus is hard. It's hard to take the role of a servant in a world that, that just emphasizes power. But it's glorious. Death is not in vain. It bears fruit. It's, it's significant. We keep our lives for eternal life. We, we will be with Him in glory. The Father will honor us. This is a great way to live. 
The life of a follower of Jesus is not easy, but it is unbelievably good. And you can testify to this, can't you, friends? And Jesus invites us to join in that. There's nothing so thrilling as living a defeated life in this way. The thrill of defeat. Thrill of of dying daily to self, living for Him. That is a great way to live. Following Jesus down this hard and glorious road. There will be nothing so thrilling if we can together as a church resolve to live defeated lives together. In this way. That, that, that the, not if we, if we will resolve not to love our lives, not to cling to our rights, not to fight for our, for our preferences, not to require our comfort. We say, no, instead, I'm gladly giving myself to serve the Lord and laying my life down, laying my rights down, laying my preferences aside for Him, for His cause. That's a happy place to be. I know it's frightening to think, but it's happy. And even as we're talking about Vision 2020, and it's not an easy road, but it's good. We must be prepared to lose, to, 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 to die. We, we won't, what will sustain us over the next five years is not monthly pep rallies. What we need is daily dying. If we're going to be, I mean, you, you could just think of, 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 even as you look through the goals, and if you have the, the um, pamphlet that we put out months ago, there's probably some on the rack downstairs. If you don't have all of the five-year goals, you, you look through and say, something's going to be hard. Because change is hard. It's difficult because it's not just because some of us are by personality that way. It's because of stuff in us, sin. We, we like ourselves. We like things to go how we want them to go. And things change and it's uncomfortable. And so we're going to have to die to self. If we're ever going to really be a multicultural church that reflects the diversity of this community, brothers and sisters, it's going to be a lot of death. Death to self. There's going to, there's going to be a lot of preferring others in love over our over ourselves. There's going to be a lot of being glad to let our preferences go for the sake of others. That's going to be part of it. If we're going to be a church that really stretches out to bless this community around us, just be prepared. It's going to hurt. You're going to, it's, it's, going to, it's going to be the loss of small things like personal space at times and convenience and comfort and resources. If we're going to be a church that really lives in community with one another and, and a church on which we can rely upon one another and truly care for one another and help one another throughout the week, not just on Sundays, but that's going to, it's going to change things for us. It's going to require daily taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following Him. It's going to be a global-minded church that's serious about seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth, whatever the cost. It may very literally mean that we lay down our lives to that end some of those in this congregation today. Some of these little babies up here. I, I don't know what it will cost, but we, it is worth it, brothers and sisters. It's not a, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I, I want us to see the glory of this. This is what Jesus says. This, it's, just this, it's just this change of perspective. We need, to see, we need to see our lives through Jesus' eyes. And Jesus says, it's a glorious road to go through the grave. It will, it, will, it will not feel hard. It will be worth it all. Now and eternally. There is no better way to live than be fully engaged in what God is doing right here. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would help us. I, I, I know this was a, a, there was a lot 
said, a lot to take in, and there were probably things that I said that only caused more confusion, and I pray that if there were any of those statements that I, where I misspoke or misunderstood what was here, that you would, you would just cause people to forget those things. But, the, but what is true, what we saw in your word, the words of Jesus, what we see of him, that it would sink deep into our souls today, God, and we would, we would be, again, as we see Jesus, as we see things like Jesus sees things, our lives even, that we will be changed. And so change us not just as individuals in this church, but change us together corporately as a body. Grow us, transform us from one degree of glory to another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.